Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic. I'm James Crabtree, Executive Director of IISS Asia here in Singapore, and today's guest host standing in for Mayor Noens. The IISS Shangri-La Dialogue returned in Singapore earlier this month, underlining the importance of in-person defense diplomacy here in Asia. We did one episode of Sound Strategic covering some elements of the dialogue uh, that some of you might have listened to, but there was so much to talk about, we decided to come back for a second. So in this episode, we're going to talk to some of my colleagues in the Singapore office to learn about what they thought stood out at the Shangri-La Dialogue this year. Today, I'm joined by my colleagues, Aaron Connolly, Ewan Graham, and Lynn Kwok, all three of whom are senior fellows in our office here in Singapore. So let's start with a big event on Saturday morning. Lloyd Austin, the U.S. Defense Secretary, Aaron, as the resident American on this podcast this evening. It's always a tricky task that the U.S. Defense Secretary has. He's got to hit various different audiences, satisfy different groups. How did you think he did? I think he approached that challenge by giving one of the longest Shangri-La Dialogue speeches that I can recall. It seemed to be an effort to be comprehensive. I think the risk is that it appeared to be less than the sum of its parts. One of the critiques of the U.S. effort in the region has been that the details are missing, that the action on the surface level is is not there. And he certainly gave us a comprehensive survey of everything that the United States is doing in the region. But again, I think the risk is that it didn't cohere in a way that was persuasive to the audience in the region which was looking for reassurance in some countries that the United States was not spoiling for a fight, and then in other countries that it was willing to restore deterrence in the, in the region. Was there much new in it? It was new in the sense that it was the first time that the Biden administration had put it all together in a single speech. This was an opportunity, really their first opportunity in the region, although Secretary Austin did give a speech at the IISS in Singapore in July last year. But it was the first time to speak to the entire region about what the Biden administration is trying to accomplish in the region and how it's trying to do that. I wouldn't say that there was a lot new in terms of the concepts that the secretary was advancing. Let me bring Lynn and Ewan in on this. We were all sitting there in the in the hall on Saturday morning listening. Lynn, first, what did you make of Austin? What jumped out for you? Secretary Austin's question and answer portion was rather weak, but I think speech-wise it was solid. It was long, but I think if he hadn't made some of the points that he made, the region would have noticed. And I think several points he made were important and notable. First, he made a strong statement that American commitment to the security and the prosperity of the Indo-Pacific is the core organizing principle of American national security policy. So I think that was very important to suggest that events in Europe were not going to distract the United States from its commitment to the Indo-Pacific. Second, Secretary Austin also referenced events in Europe to remind the region why the rules-based international order matters And he tells the region that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is what happens when, and I quote, oppressors trample the rules that protect us all. I think it was also very important that Secretary Austin kept to the script on Taiwan. And given heightened tensions between the United States and China on this issue, this was watched very carefully in the region, and that was important. Fourth, he expressed a desire to work with both friends and competitors to strengthen the guardrails against conflict. Now, whether the United States will proceed to do that um, with China, of course, is an open question, but at least the desire was expressed during the speech that the U.S. will be working 
aligned with China to avoid conflict. And finally, he also avoided framing geopolitical competition in ideological terms, which I think plays very poorly in the region. And of course, we saw the Singapore defense minister take pains to highlight in his speech in the last session that this is not an ideological struggle between autocracies and democracies. So I think that point was appreciated in the region as well. Ewan, did you have any thoughts on Lloyd Austin's efforts to explain the Biden administration's policies? I'd agree with Lynn's cutting of the speech according to delivered remarks and Q&A. I'd be a bit harsher in my judgment in that I thought the speech was serviceable, but the Q&A was poor. That was really quite a stark distinction that was shared, I think, more widely in, in the audience. My reflection on the speech is that there was very little in the way of hard numbers. So those who are looking really for clarity on dollar signs behind American strategy for the region wouldn't derive any comfort from this. There were no new initiatives. It struck their usual rhetorical notes, but there were no major new points really to hang a news article on. The Q&A section on Taiwan was evasive. Uh, I think it kind of came across as a bit of a stonewall approach when the questions were were asked. I think it just appeared very risk averse that the secretary didn't want to take that subject on. But there was a kind of broad symmetry between the US and China in not wanting to call each other out by name as well. I think that came across in in both uh, General Wei's speech on the Sunday as well as Secretary Austin's, um, that they were not going to put each other in in the frame. Uh, Although the rhetoric was was high on the Chinese side in other ways, that struck me as notable. If the Q&A was poor, what in particular was it that struck you? I mean, as a leader, he he doesn't have the best reputation for speaking off the cuff, but were there particular things that you felt he didn't deal with well? Taiwan was the main one. I just thought it came across as defensive that he said our policy hasn't changed and there was no deviation from that, no attempt to sort of move the ball a few millimetres across the line. That's in some ways the minimum expectation in a Q&A session that he'd be able to say something a little more. He, he didn't. It, it just looked as if he was very averse to taking questions on an area that he perceived as high risk. Aaron, do you want to come in on this? I think it's important to remember that the Biden administration has one really big accomplishment in terms of its policy in the region, and that really is Lloyd Austin's personal accomplishment, which was the way that he convinced President Rodrigo Duterte last year to abandon his plans to cancel the U.S. Visiting Forces Agreement in the Philippines, which would have had incredibly you know, destructive effects on U.S. force posture in the region. He's got some credibility on the issues in this region. But I just didn't see an exposition of that in the speech. He focused early and upfront on the pandemic. And I think the Defense Department in particular within the Biden administration has taken on board the advice that if you are not talking about the effects of the pandemic in this region, which was really ravaged in a way that is, I think, perhaps difficult for for listeners in Europe to understand, then you're really not talking about what Southeast Asians are caring about. That's probably advice that isn't as relevant as it was last year. But I noticed there was a similarity in the way that he addressed the pandemic in 2021 and 2022. James, just one quick point about Austin's speech. He did go out of his way to say that the UK was a welcome presence in the Indo-Pacific. I think that if there were any questions that were still hanging as a result of his Fullerton lecture for the Institute last year, he sort of scotched those. The language was emphatic that they were supporting a UK presence. So we'll come back to the Europeans a little later in the podcast, but Ewan, let me stay with you in a dialogue that 
uh, has speeches principally from defence ministers. It's always interesting to see the new defence ministers, and there were a range from the Republic of Korea to Holland to France, and in particular in our part of the world, Australia, an area that you know well. So we had Richard Miles very recently appointed as the Australian Defence Minister, and he hopped on a plane for really his first significant international engagement. What did you make of his speech and, and his presence at the dialogue more generally? I think he did well. And that was the general feedback that I got from others at the dialogue. As you said, he was very new into the job, although he he has been a long understudy in, in opposition. So he knows the issues. It was a confident performance and he put his personal stamp on it. He made clear that there's broad continuity in Australia's defence policy from the previous government, but Labour is going to communicate it, I think, in it, in its own way. Uh, and that was clear in his speech. I thought the speech that he just gave recently in India was an improvement on the Shangri-La. I thought that in rhetorical terms was really a, a humdinger. But the Shangri-La speech was, was serviceable. I think his Q&A performance was the thing that really lifted it. He stood out for being confident in taking questions on China in the way that contrasted, I think, positively with Lloyd Austin. He didn't seem struck in the headlights of the big event by taking questions that were sensitive on China. In fact, he went into considerable detail, seemed confident, held his ground, and that, that was reflected in the interviews that he gave in the lead up and, and afterwards. And of course, the Australians had the big bilateral with China uh, on the sidelines of the dialogue. So speech aside, it was a big icebreaker. This was the first ministerial level contact since 2018. So, you know, an extraordinary long period of, in the deep freeze for Australia-China relations. And they achieved that without offering any rhetorical or substantive concessions, as far as one can tell. So I think that was a job well done. There were notes there for the Southeast Asian audience, but I think particularly clear is Miles's own attachment to the Pacific, which also came through in his in his comments. Before we turn to the Pacific, which I'd like to ask you about, there are two other things I think people were looking out for with Australia, one of which was AUKUS and the other of which was the relationship with France, where the dialogue saw a, something of a rapprochement uh, after the, the AUKUS spat. Did either of those strike you as significant, any AUKUS developments? And, and how do you read the back and forth that, that he had with his French opposite number? On AUKUS, it was a, a straight bat. So Labour has already committed itself in opposition to pursuing AUKUS, he was simply following through on that. I think no great surprise that Labour is going to continue with the submarine project and the other aspects of, of AUKUS in, in terms of advanced technology sharing with the UK and the US. And I think he will have been pleased by Secretary Austin's reference to AUKUS too, that the US is prepared to share more with its allies and co-develop key technologies. That's music to Australian ears because Part of the reason for AUKUS is to overcome, I think, the political barriers that exist in the United States, particularly in the Senate, to exporting defence technology, even to, to close allies. The French relationship, they also met bilaterally, as well as China. A difficult relationship in, in the last year has been France. And I think the advent of a new uh, Australian government has been helpful for both parties because the animus was so personalised between Macron and Morrison that had Morrison won the election, I think it would have been very difficult to move on. And although Macron's been returned, it gives him the excuse, if you like, to wipe the slate clean with, a, with Australia uh, in the form of a, a new administration. And it's in France's interest, frankly, because they have territory 
either side of Australia. So they do need Australia there as a as a partner to to help them going forward. While AUKUS itself will remain a touchy point between Paris and Canberra, on the broader security agenda, we'll see a mending of ways. You mentioned just a second ago the, the issue of the Pacific Islands that have been much in the news recently because of the agreement between China and the Solomon Islands, who were represented at the dialogue, and then the mooted and the 10 uh, uh, Southwest Pacific Island nation deal that China uh, has been trying to strike but hasn't done so yet. We made quite an effort this year to represent uh, the Pacific Islands at the dialogue. What did you take out of their participation, both individually and the topic as it, as it came up throughout the discussions? Well, as you said, James, we made a particular effort, and not for the first time, to make sure that Pacific voices are represented on, on the Shangri-La stage. I think there is a fairly low level of knowledge about South Pacific issues, particularly in, in Asia. So I think it helps to stitch together two rather disconnected parts of the region. But they're rather more geopolitically connected for the reasons that you mentioned. China has been, ironically, the glue between these two discrete sub-regions uh, with the recent diplomatic move by Foreign Minister Wang Yi and in particular, the bilateral security deal with the Solomon Islands. And we had representatives at ministerial level, both from the Solomon Islands and from Fiji. That was, I think, a, a welcome note. They predictably put climate change top of their agenda. So I think making sure that the global audience hears the Pacific prioritization of, of climate as their, their clear number one, as the, and as they see it, for understandable reasons, existential security risk. But I think it was also helpful in the question and answer session uh, when the Fijian defense minister also delved a bit more into geopolitics. It revealed that geopolitics is not a new thing for the South Pacific. They do have a track record of, of knowing how to deal with, with great powers, despite their disparity in, in scale terms. We have to remember, of course, that the Shangri-La dialogue is not just the dialogue at the uh, summit level, it's also the bilaterals that happen on the side. And there was quite a lot of activity that happened, uh, even though, unfortunately, the Solomon Islands minister wasn't able to, to speak. He was able to meet bilaterally with a, with a number of governments, you know, including New Zealand, uh, Australia uh, and others. It, it shows that there's practical value to, to getting the Pacific Islands represented here, not just rhetorical value. So let's move from some of our smaller guests at the dialogue through to some of our old friends in Europe. And Lynn, I'd, I'd like to ask you about that. At the dialogue, we had a number of European speakers, not just President Zelensky in the virtual address, but also Holland and France, the new French minister who arrived again for his first appointment, but, but a couple of others who might normally have been expected to come who didn't, the United Kingdom and Germany, principally amongst them. What did you make of the European contribution and where stands the effort of European countries to do more in the Indo-Pacific after this year's dialogue? The French defense minister was only three weeks into his job. So I think his presence at the Shangri-La Dialogue sent a positive signal. And I believe this was the first time that we had the Netherlands Defence Minister or a Netherlands Defence Minister speaking in a plenary session at the dialogue. And I think this was quite fitting considering that the Netherlands had in November 2020 joined countries like Germany and France and subsequently the UK with their Indo-Pacific guidelines. So I thought that was quite a, a positive signal as well. 
The speeches by both the European ministers who turned up for the dialogue were, to use Ewan's term, serviceable, and I think generally demonstrated, rhetorically at least, uh, commitment to the region. France, because of its territories and extensive EEZ or exclusive economic zone in the region, and the Netherlands, because of the importance of the rules-based international order. Minister Ollegren, in fact, when asked about whether or not uh, the war in Europe would detract from European countries' commitments to the Indo-Pacific, admitted quite freely that, yes, Europe is at the top of the minds of European countries, and understandably so, but the war in Europe is also a wake-up call to Europe of the threats across the globe, and what happens when one allows um, threats to grow, and therefore underscoring the importance of having the various Indo-Pacific strategies that European countries have come up with. But ultimately, as you suggest, the proof is going to be in the pudding. As you highlighted earlier, um, we did not have the German defence minister nor the UK defence minister at the dialogue, and perhaps they were the casualties of the war in Europe. So whether or not we'll see greater European commitment moving forward is going to be the billion-dollar question. Let's turn our our attention back a little closer to home, given all four of us are based here in Singapore, where the dialogue takes place. We had a range of Southeast Asian ministers uh, speaking at the dialogue, as usual. Uh, I I wondered if there were any uh, speeches in particular that jumped out at you and and how you felt the, the Southeast Asian ministers were trying to balance this perennial question of their place in a world of rising great power competition. I wouldn't say any one speech in particular stood out for me. I think it was the totality of the speeches um, that really struck me and what it said or did not say that struck me. So if we take a step back, the main challenges in the region are threefold in my mind. First, the intensifying geopolitical competition, which the region complains is squeezing their strategic options. Second, unlawful and coercive Chinese actions. And third, a U.S. that uh, some countries in the region fear is becoming increasingly confrontational vis-a-vis China. Southeast Asian countries, I think, spoke only very broadly about these challenges, if at all. So we heard from the Philippines defense minister, for instance, speak about the global and regional security environment getting more volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous, and how countries were operating under the shadows of geopolitical competition. The Malaysian defense minister avoided all talk of geopolitical competition and instead, quite surprisingly, I think, focused on four challenges, um, increase in transboundary crime, from border reopenings, the upsurge in online disinformation, from terror groups and extremists, the threat of biological warfare and food security are giving rise to instability. So I think many of them uh, were seeking to sidestep the issue of geopolitical competition and, if you will, avoid having to take sides between the United States and China. What also struck me, I think, was, well, a lack of clarity. It struck me that Southeast Asian countries were quite adrift in in having a clear response to how they should respond to um, geopolitical rivalry. Aaron will be talking about Prabowo or the Indonesian minister later, but I think if I could just briefly mention that I thought that perhaps his speech was the clearest in, um, in terms of giving a sense of um, how Indonesia, at the very least, uh, would respond to geopolitical rivalry, and it didn't reassure me at all. He talked about the Asian way, which 
he uh, suggested had helped keep peace in the region for the last uh, decades. We have a changing geopolitical situation. We have the rise of China. We have increasingly coercive and unlawful um, actions on China's part, but we haven't had a change in the Asian response to these challenges, nor have we seen the Asian response help in the sense of stopping China's militarization of beaches in the South China Sea, uh, stopping uh, China from encroaching into the exclusive economic zones of various Southeast Asian coastal states, including Indonesia's, nor have we seen China stem its presence, sometimes in the hundreds of maritime vessels surrounding features occupied or administered by other countries. So I don't have a sense of Southeast Asian countries having a clear idea of how they should navigate the geopolitical competition facing them. So Aaron Lin mentioned Prabowo, the Indonesian defense minister. He did indeed give uh, one of the most colorful and spirited uh, speeches in the dialogue. You're an Indonesianist and you run our Southeast Asia program. And what did you make of Prabowo? What was he trying to do with this speech? And did it surprise you the way that he did it? His staff wrote a speech for him that he didn't give. It's unclear why that is, but he got up to the podium and gave a speech that began with a long discursive meditation on the region's history with colonialism. I really thought this was going to go in a kind of uh, neo-anti-colonial direction. In fact, Perboa ended up speaking about the great powers in very positive terms. He said that China had always acted with benevolence in the region, and he praised the United States' anti-colonial instincts, said the United States was the first anti-colonial power. What is most interesting about this is that Perboa is a major political figure in Indonesia, And this is exactly the opposite of how he talks about great powers to Indonesian audiences. And I'm not sure if that will be appreciated by the international audience that was listening to his speech in the plenary hall or back home in Indonesia. But he seemed to be trying to reassure the United States and China that Indonesia trusted them, had confidence in them maybe trying to create some good offices on his part with those great powers. It was a very unusual speech in the context of speeches at the dialogue, which are generally very heavy on policy. This was very light. And it was a very unusual speech in the context of Prabowo's larger oeuvre that this is not the sort of thing that he normally says about especially China and the United States. Aaron, let me ask you one final question, which is at the dialogue, we have these uh, separate events called special sessions. Each of the three of you uh, on this podcast chaired one. Uh, You chaired one on Myanmar, which is an area that you look at quite a lot in your Southeast Asia programs. What were you trying to do in that session? And we feel that in our own small way that you made made any progress on the, the complex issue of where next for Myanmar? I know that Myanmar has dropped off the front page in Europe and North America in recent months, but it remains the big issue of armed conflict in Southeast Asia. And it was interesting to note it was a packed hall. We hadn't been informed ahead of time, but Singapore's foreign minister showed up and also ASEAN's secretary general. It was clear on the panel the divisions within ASEAN about how to approach the crisis, because we had on on the one hand, uh, Pompeyman Kanchanalak, the special advisor to the foreign minister of Thailand, was a very influential figure there, particularly on Myanmar policy, outlining a strategy of engagement with the junta, encouraging them to hold elections, which Derek Chile from the United States argued would, would be a sham. And then on the other hand, you had Saifuddin Abdullah from Malaysia, who was arguing that engagement with the junta was hopeless and that the ASEAN should try to engage the national unity government, which was created as a kind of shadow government in opposition to the coup. 
And so those divisions within ASEAN were very apparent. And then, of course, we had uh, Derek Chalet from the United States on the panel as well, encouraging the region to move away from its strategy of tentative engagement with the junta. But what was most interesting to me in that session was the interventions from the floor, almost all of which I think uh, in retrospect were from Southeast Asians. There was a sort of clear regional divide uh, within the special sessions. The interventions from Thailand in particular demonstrated that while the Thai government has a very clear strategy of engagement, that is increasingly the subject of political debate within Thailand. The opposition has taken the view that that strategy isn't the right one to take and might not work in the long term. And an opposition member of parliament uh, was present and pushed, pushed that case. And I thought that was very interesting to see foreign policy, which is not normally a political issue in Thailand, emerge as an issue in that way. And, and to have that in evidence at the special session was a particularly interesting dynamic. It was a great session. So good. Let me just ask a final question of each of you to uh, to conclude. This is the second of two episodes of Sound Strategic that we've done on this year's Shangri-La Dialogue. And I asked our guests on the preceding episode just to name a highlight for them uh, that they hadn't previously mentioned, something that stood out at the dialogue for them personally. So Aaron, let me start with you. What was your highlight of Shangri-La Dialogue 2022? My highlight was one of our Southeast Asian Young Leaders Program delegates, Bic Chen from Vietnam, asking the Chinese defense minister a question about his comments. In his plenary address, he had said that China had never occupied an inch of foreign soil. Bic responded that over 2,000 years, China had invaded Vietnam many times. She, I think, assuming good faith, said that she would interpret that as a forward-looking statement and asked whether it was a commitment not to invade Vietnam again in the future. And the minister, who's usually very good at answering questions, oftentimes sort of laughs off questions or gives very direct answers, seemed upset by this and uh, I think responded in a really unconstructive way by telling her that she needed to read more history and that if she read more history, she would understand better about the relationship between Vietnam and China. And I don't think that answer went down very well with many of the delegates from Southeast Asia who were there in the plenary hall and is perhaps evidence of a slightly harder, rougher edge around Chinese diplomacy that we sometimes see in private and in the region. I wouldn't say I had one personal highlight, but what I really loved about the dialogue this year was how the different parts were woven or woven into a very coherent tapestry. I think starting with the Japanese prime minister talking about how it's Ukraine today and perhaps East Asia tomorrow with a Zelensky's um, virtual speech that he was grateful for international support, but that such support was not just for him and his country, but to keep our world safe. And also the penultimate session on common European and Asian defense and security challenges. I think all of that together with the various European ministers also speaking throughout these various panels helped to make the linkages between European and Asian security clearer. And I think that's important, not just in terms of sustaining for the longer term European commitment in the Indo-Pacific, but also in having Asia understand that it has stakes in Europe and what is happening there beyond just food and oil prices, but also its implications for the rules-based order, which was already being undermined in the region, not least by China and its actions in the South China Sea. So I thought that to me was one of the best parts about the dialogue. And the second part of the dialogue, if I may, that really moved me was 
the closing session in the Young Leaders Program that Aaron just mentioned, when I was sharing a session with Singapore Foreign Minister. And, you know, I was afraid that it was the last session of the Young Leaders Program. It had been a very long week and perhaps there would be not enough questions for the minister. But when I asked whether there were any questions, I think almost all 40 hands in the room shot up immediately. So I think that for me was a really heartwarming moment when, you know, you just think about the young leaders' interest and engagement with the region. And I think that bodes very well for the region's security moving forwards. In purely personal terms, it was really good to see a lot of people that we haven't seen for three years. I think that really came across that there was a lot of bound up energy from people who've not been allowed to travel for a long period because of COVID, genuinely enjoying getting back into the room and seeing each other and doing all of the the side conversations. In terms of the speeches, I wasn't going to say this, but since Aaron's mentioned Praboa, I thought it was really interesting that we had a major ministerial speech, totally off the cuff, extemporizing. This was the raw, ad hoc Praboa view of the world. No Western defense minister in her or his right mind would have contemplated that. So I think that's really interesting to be witness to that and and to be able to sort of analyze it after the fact. I hope we get more of that in future because, you know, there's nothing worse than a defense minister reading out a speech that you know that they haven't written. This was very much the the opposite to that. And that, that kept it live and interesting. I could be a glass half empty person, as you know, James, sometimes. So let me also cap out the low point which was the fact that we unfortunately didn't have an Indian ministerial voice this year. I think that was a a voice missed. It's a note to ourselves that we need to try harder to secure uh, an Indian um, ministerial speech for for next year, because I think that impoverishes the dialogue. I know there are various reasons why India was not able to attend at ministerial level, but I think it is important that the Indian voice is heard. And although in the session that I chaired, there was an admiral from the Indian Navy who was leading the Indian delegation, it doesn't have quite the same impact as a, as a ministerial voice. If we are talking about the Asia-Pacific or Indo-Pacific, the Indo part of it has to come to play. I think that's also a challenge on on India for the future. Good points, well made. Uh, No disagreement from me on on that front. So let me conclude this, the second episode of Sound Strategic on the Shangri-La Dialogue 2022. And we'll look forward to beginning work uh, almost immediately on the the next one for next year. But let me say thank you to my guests and my colleagues, Ewan Graham, Aaron Connolly and Lynn Kwok, all senior fellows of one stripe or another in the IISS Asia office in Singapore. And thank you to all of you for listening. We hope you enjoy this episode. For more in-depth analysis, transcripts of the speeches and sessions, and video links so that you can watch them for yourselves of this year's Shangri-La Dialogue, visit the IISS website or check into our social media streams on Twitter and LinkedIn. You'll also find more information in our show notes. As ever, please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you happen to listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all of our latest episodes. Thank you, and see you next time.